Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I am speaking with Sabina Alkaya. Sabina is Director of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, or OFI, at the University of Oxford. She also developed the Multidimensional Poverty Index, the MPI, which is now the most widely used measure of multidimensional poverty around the world. On the 16th of July, OFI and the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, launched the 2020 Global MPI Report. In this episode, Sabina highlights some of the main findings in the report and reflects on the importance of measuring multidimensional poverty. Sabina, thank you so much for joining us and for making the time, um, especially now as you've just launched the global report on the Multidimensional Poverty Index for 2020. And I imagine it's a busy time to promote that and uh, to discuss uh, what it means for multidimensional poverty at the moment. To begin with, and for those who may not know about the Multidimensional Poverty Index or the MPI, can you say a bit more about what it is and how it works? Yes, it begins with the insight from Amartya Sen, which is the insight from Voices of the Poor, which is the insight from many both impoverished people in communities and people who work on them, that poor people's lives are battered and diminished in many different ways at the same time. And an adequate measure of poverty has to take those into account. So an MPI basically counts the number or the weighted sum, if the indicators are not equally weighted, of deprivations that a poor person carries at the same time. You could think of that as their deprivation load or their deprivation score. It's the percentage of possible deprivations that they actually are experiencing um, with their weights. And then it goes beyond that to say, okay, well, who is poor? Because many people are deprived in one thing, but it may not constitute poverty that requires a policy response. So uh, people will be identified poor if they're deprived in a certain number. So the Global MPI report that we launched last week has 10 indicators weighted within three dimensions. The dimensions are equally weighted and the indicators within each dimension are equally weighted. So the dimensions are health, education, living standard. And within health, we have if anyone in the household is malnourished or if a child has died in the last five years. In education, if a child is out of school or if nobody has completed schooling. And in living standards, there are six indicators. Lack of clean water, adequate sanitation, adequate housing, um, electricity, clean cooking fuel, and assets. So a person's deprivation profile is the weighted sum of indicators they're deprived in. And if they're deprived in one third or more, they're identified as poor. We also report poverty cutoffs of 20% and 50%. But the really important thing for listeners to realize is that that's a methodology. But what is reported is not just one number, a magical number going from zero to one. It's an information platform. So when we report the global MPI for any country, for children, for a subnational region, we say, what percentage of people are poor? We say, what's the average deprivation score or deprivation load among the poor people? And we say, for each and every indicator, what percentage of the population are poor and deprived in that indicator? And so the information platform is what makes the MPI, which is one number, 
a policy tool because you can see how people are poor and design responses that are adequate. The last thing to say is that the global MPI uses three dimensions and 10 indicators, but dozens of countries have national MPIs with different dimensions and different indicators, depending on what's right for their context. So the methodology is flexible in that way. Thank you for this explanation. I think that's really clear in terms of what's included and how it works, um, and particularly your point about it being an information platform um, as opposed to just an aggregated index that presents one single number or estimate of the proportion of people in multidimensional poverty or the density of their poverty. I think that probably speaks to a criticism that some people have voiced in relation to multidimensional poverty measures in general, and the fact that it hides so much information, uh, but really it is about all the underpinning indicators that we should look at. So thank you for pointing that out. Now you, and um, with that I mean the team at OFI and together with the United Nations Development Programme published the annual report for 2020 last week, as you said. What are some of the main findings about multidimensional poverty that are presented in that report, especially at this time during the COVID-19 pandemic? That report is a work of many people, and so I'd like to you know, thank the colleagues of the Human Development Report Office for doing a wonderful analysis of SDGs and cross-checking the numbers of the updated global MPI figures for 2020. And on my team, it's been a, basically an extra large release. Why? So this year we have the global MPI database for 107 countries and 5.9 billion people. And that's updated from last year by 25 countries and 913 million people. So that's a lot more numbers. All the tables are online. All of the details of how we treat every single data set are online. In addition to that, for the first time, we released, we have a comprehensive release of strictly harmonized trends over time for 80 countries. Um, and those are home to 5 billion people. So it's the first time we feel we can actually say how global poverty has changed. And a lot of the report covers that. I'll give some headlines in a minute. And then the third is that because of the COVID pandemic, we did an extra step of analysis. So we predicted poverty trends forward to answer a very basic question. How many countries are on track to cut their MPI by one half between 2015 and 2030? in line with the motivation of the SDGs. And also, given COVID, how many years has that set these poverty reduction trends back? First, let's just take a snapshot of those 107 countries and 5.9 billion people. What we find is that 1.3 billion people live in multidimensional poverty. So they're deprived in one third of the weighted indicators at the same time. And half of them are children under the age of 18. 84% of them live in South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, and 84% all of them also live in rural areas. And when we say multidimensional, it really is multidimensional in that 99% of those 1.3 billion people have at least three deprivations in their load, and over 80%, 83.5% are deprived in at least five indicators or more. So that's a little bit at a snapshot, the bigger picture. And we have this for the different poverty cutoffs. We have a new measure of destitution 
Um, we have it disaggregated by rural urban areas and by age cohorts for every country. And it's disaggregated by 1,279 regions. So just to show a little bit of those together, two thirds of the 1.3 billion people live in middle income countries. But within middle income countries, at the country level, poverty goes from zero to 57%. And among subnational regions, it goes from zero to 91%. So the poverty really has a lot of variations within countries and we try to profile those um, because it's so important to understand how it, how it varies. But how has this changed over time? So of those 80 countries, we included 75 in the report and 65 of those 75 countries had statistically significant decreases in poverty. And what's really interesting is that the leading countries Sierra Leone, Mauritania, and Liberia were all in Sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, 10 of the fastest countries to reduce were in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, that's terms absolute reduction because it's very hard for countries with low poverty like China, Armenia, or Kazakhstan to have a big absolute reduction because they don't have enough poverty. Um, so we also mentioned relative poverty reductions where those countries and North Macedonia lead the pack. But what's also interesting about those 65 countries coming back to the indicator level detail is that they have very different patterns. So Sierra Leone um, had big deprivations and reductions in nutrition and Liberia or Mauritania would have reduced, for example, assets and school attendance hugely in Liberia and years of schooling or drinking water in Mauritania. And so each country has its own particular path to success. And we try to point out a little bit of the variations in how they've gotten there. And then the third part, and I could say lots more about the reductions. There's just so much data. It's two years of work um, in, in getting it to this point. But in terms of the projections forward, there's good news. So as I said, 65 countries reduced poverty significantly. And we then projected forward using the linear, the relative, constant relative change and a logistic model. And by all three models, 47 countries uh, would be on track out of 70 to cut their MPI by half between 2015 and 2030. 10, we're not sure, the models conflict, and 18 are off track, but many of them could go on track if they just increase their performance to the median level. So overall, before COVID, we were about to really tell a very positive story indeed. The question is how COVID's impacted that. And the problem is that the data that we have are sparse. So we use the World Food Program and the UNESCO predictions of increases in food insecurity and in children out of school to do different scenarios, six different scenarios, increasing in all countries, all children to be so that 50% additional children were out of school. And among poor and vulnerable people um, who were not deprived in nutrition, increasing the burden of nutrition by 10, 25, or 50%. According to those scenarios in different combinations between, we've been set back by COVID between three and 10 years. And that's very distressing. Um, I think we always want to end on a story of hope. And the story of hope is, that of the 75 countries, as I said, the fastest reduction was in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone had its reduction from 2013 
2017, which were the same years that the Ebola pandemic um, raged in Sierra Leone. And it's by no means perfect. There's so much tragedy, so much difficulty that was experienced at that time in Sierra Leone. And yet still, despite all these odds, it was able to make tremendous progress. And so our hope as people who just do the numbers work on poverty is that these numbers will raise alarm bells and that other people who are actually on the ground and actually have the wherewithal to act will be able to turn the tide. And instead of having the predicted increase in MPI, multidimensional poverty, they'll turn it back and they'll, they'll reduce it strongly. So that's just in a very, it's a little thumbnail of, of what we have in the report. And I've left a lot out that other colleagues have done. Thank you for that summary. I mean, it's clear that the findings are very rich. And as uh, you highlighted, it's really worthwhile to dig into the detail because there's so many differences across countries and also when looking across different indicators. I did want to pick up on the last point around how COVID might uh, set countries back in terms of poverty levels. And I don't mean to belabor the negative side of things, but we do also have quite a lot of research coming out right now with projections uh, potentially of what monetary poverty may look like over the coming years. And those projections, I think, are probably worse than, than the picture that you're painting in the sense that they're suggesting that poverty figures might be set back in terms of progress by about 30 years, with I think the worst projections considering up to half a billion people um, falling into extreme poverty. Now, of course, there's a lot of discussion about the uh, benefits of having multidimensional measures alongside um, or in addition to uh, monetary or income-based measures. My understanding of that is that in most cases, what we see coming out of multidimensional measurement is that there are more people experiencing various deprivations than what monetary measures usually show. But in this case, it seems like the multidimensional picture might be more optimistic than the income-based picture. Do you think that's a reflection of what might happen in reality, or is that also just the way in which data is being used at the moment to make these estimates? And really, we don't know enough to make accurate predictions about what will happen in the future. Very good question, and I do feel that we do not know enough. We projected increases for two of the 10 indicators, but child mortality might also increase. People will be migrating from urban to rural areas, and with that, they might lose access to clean water or sanitation or good quality housing. So that could be an underestimate, and we don't know. Also, in terms of numbers of people, the lowest scenario we have predicts an increment of 130 million people and the 10-year scenario for us is an increment of 550 million people. So it, it, it's big numbers even just with these two scenarios. Really, until we have more data and can get accurate predictions, it's difficult to know whether this is the best way forward. I think really what we need is action at this point, you know, quick and decisive, and people taking the leadership to make this a time prevent these increases from ever happening or to reverse poverty not just so that it doesn't increase but actually so that it decisively decreases or is eradicated and if the numbers can help to do that that would be very helpful but i think until we have you know more of these rapid remote surveys of good quality it'll be difficult for us to improve our estimates but those are the numbers that we have 
on the point about these numbers um, instigating action, now if I'm correct, this is the 10th report, you've been working on the MPI for over a decade now, on the global MPI, but also, as you mentioned, with governments to develop their own national MPIs and for them to use it to monitor poverty levels, but also to inform policy. Now, obviously, there's quite a lot of politics involved in this process. And I imagine that's particularly the case when certain indicators lead to high poverty estimates. Um, and in that, that case, policymakers and politicians might find it difficult to stomach and work with that. So in your years of working with many different governments around the world, how have you navigated this political side of multidimensional poverty measurement? It's a very good question. I'm trained as an economist and all of the politics is really not what I was trained in or good at. But it's been fascinating to learn um, from colleagues who are better at it and also from our counterparts. But it's always it's not necessarily bad that a starting level of multidimensional poverty could be higher than income. For example, there would be many who would say perhaps that the dollar ninety a day measure was too low, so they might want something that they felt better reflected their aspirations as citizens. Or there might be a government, and there have been two, who in their launch of their own national MPI, which had a higher rate than their national monetary poverty measure said as the launch message, we care about you. And we want to recognize some of the hardships that our current monetary measures are not recognizing. And the new multidimensional poverty index both gives us greater depth of understanding. And also we recognize people who are overlooked by the monetary poverty measures. So I think that um, the real question is, can a government rally around a number that they really commit to trying to change. So it's not a statistic that sits on a shelf, but it, it becomes a tool that engages people across the sectors, across different levels of government. So that provinces who do a good job reducing poverty get national recognition so that the ministers in the, the health or the education or the work or whatever women's and children ministries um, that do fast reduction of MPI get recognition for it and also where deprivations require the cooperation of multiple sectors to reduce children out of school. You might need work on child nutrition, you might need work on roads or on uh, awareness. Then this, the groups work together because they recognize that all of them will get some kind of positive reward as well as ethical reward, of course, <laughs> if poverty goes down. So that understanding that multidimensional poverty can be a tool, that it can come down and it can come down powerfully is perhaps its best selling device, as it were. In Colombia, when President Santos launched their MPI, which had been developed by the previous government and is sustained by now the, the current government, but at that time, 30.4% of people were poor. It became a strong political priority. And after 18 years, 19.6% of people were poor. So it was a de decrease um, by a, a third. So I think that that kind of having a good ambition, but also a feeling that it's tractable, that if we do our job well, it will come down. That can be a good motivation. And also, if it comes down, other SDGs, because all of the national MPIs are linked to SDG indicators, other SDGs also come down. So there are benefits that are seen from different angles uh, with that, even though most of the national MPIs differ. Some countries, like Nepal, use the global MPI as their national MPI. They calculate it themselves, but many governments would add work or environmental indicators or 
childhood indicators to their MPI. In terms of the um, relationship between the global MPI and the national MPIs, how do you navigate that right now with the global reports? Because if many countries adopt a national MPI that's slightly different from the global one, how are some of the national pictures that are in the reports different from the national pictures in the national reports and the messaging that goes around that in country, particularly if the picture is not as good uh, as it would have been with the national MPI? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Three responses. One is that often actually the global MPI is lower. So a lot of the national MPIs began in Latin America where the global MPI really does not capture what poverty means. It's too acute. And so the national poverty measures are just a, a breath of relief because this isn't relevant for most of the countries there. So the national MPIs tend to be higher. A second is that Sir Tony Atkinson, the giant in work on inequality and poverty, in his last book, as well as in the last commission he chaired for the World Bank, advised people working on poverty to look across national and international measures, monetary and non-monetary. So actually last week we also launched, as academics do, Appendix E, which is terribly interesting to us. But for all 80 countries, it has a dollar ninety, three twenty, five fifty national monetary poverty, national multidimensional poverty, the global MPI and the vulnerability and the severe poverty and uh, figures so that we have them all on the same graph. And you can see how the trends of the different measures vary and try to explain them. Because I think we need to move beyond the place where just one poverty measure is the one that you stick to and just see how different measures with their different lenses um, are making the story come alive in different ways. Um, and the third and last thing that I would say about that is that the national MPIs are fantastic for policy. They're done with national surveys, done by national statistics offices. They're reported now as indicator 1.2.2 in the SDGs. They've just been reported for the first time a few weeks ago. But governments want to know what their neighbors are doing. They're as curious as you and I are, and they can't. Because the national MPI, you can't compare. But if I want to do what's happening, I want to know what's happening right across the border, I use the global MPI because it might not be precisely right, but I have it for myself and my neighbor. And I can see you know, how they are doing, how we are doing, and that can be a good tool for constructive competition because we want people to compete in reducing poverty faster. That's, that's no bad thing. And the global MPI helps that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you would like to share with, with our listeners, either about the MPI or about poverty measurements, multidimensional poverty measurements more generally? Yes, I think there, there are three different things. One is just uh, pro forma, but we do have online methodological notes where we write out how we treat every data set. We have on our website the do files, the computational files, the data tables with all subnational groups, all indicators, standard errors. You know, really it's, it's geeks, paradise, and other people <laughs> greeting. The second thing is to say that there is a lot of research that's needed. And so all we have done so far is put out trends for a lot of countries. But we want to know why poverty went down. We want to know why monetary poverty is behaving different than multidimensional. And that's going to take a lot of qualitative and quantitative you know, investigations. At OFI, we're a tiny, tiny team. So there's no way that we can do that. So again, it would just be so fascinating if other people might engage 
give suggestions, tell us where we're wrong. We're very open to criticisms. That's how we learn. But in, engage these materials and mo most of all, unpack the stories that are useful to countries about what works, what was successful in the countries that moved poverty the fastest. And the last is just to admit the global MPI is not perfect. From the beginning, we wanted to add work. We wanted to add violence. We wanted to add empowerment. We wanted to add environment. We wanted indicators on quality of education and of healthcare. And one of our sadnesses is that we don't have those data. We don't have them so that we can look at the same person in their life, at their lived experience of overlapping deprivations. Um, but the hope is that we will also be able, little by little, to expand the environment of poverty data. And COVID is giving us a chance with rapid remote surveys to look at the joint distribution of deprivations, which means to look at the same person and the different things they're experiencing, but maybe in some new combinations. And so our hope is that we'll be able to have some additional insights from the data gathering period in COVID. Thank you so much, Sabina, for sharing your thoughts and your insights, and also for an overview of the main findings of the 2020 reports. Let's indeed hope we have more data soon and we can get on with the job of better measurement and insight into what's happening in the world right now with many people facing hardship, but possibly also many policymakers acting to make things better soon. So thank you again, and we look forward to the future work of OFI and the MPI. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, sign up to receive updates from our website poverty-unpacked.org or follow us on social media. Also let us know if you have any feedback about this episode or any other episodes. We hope you will join us again next time.